home improvements, home renovations, home maintenance, home repairs, and all the other challenges of home ownership. Welcome to the Thumb and Hammer Home Improvement Podcast. Hey folks, my name is Doug, and this is episode 30 of the Thumb and Hammer Podcast. And it's been a while. Turns out that I took another unplanned break from the podcast. Believe me, that was not my intention. It's just something that happened, and it points to one of the drawbacks of living in a smaller house, especially one that is undergoing some renovations. Here's the deal. We had house guests. Back in April, my wife's parents, the in-laws, came for a visit. Now, when they visit us, it's usually for an extended period of time, and this time it was for about 10 weeks. The record is 12, so we came pretty close. But anyway, they came for an extended visit, which, for the most part, was fine. We all get along okay, and, you know, you got some inevitable tension every now and then, which is to be expected, but it was a good visit. But now, our household went from two adults, one teenager, and one dog, to four adults, one teenager, and two dogs. And everyone was on a different schedule. Mom-in-law tends to turn in early and gets up before sunrise. Dad-in-law usually stays up later and sleeps in, you know, if you can call it that, until about nine or so. The bottom line is that as far as I'm concerned, there was no good time to actually sit down and record a podcast. Remember, our basement is still an—it's still in an unfinished state following a flood that we had just after we moved in and the subsequent waterproofing that we had done. And the basement was where the home office was going to be. So for the last couple of years, everything has been spread out. The printer is in our bedroom. The podcasting equipment was in the family room. Any files and paperwork were either in the dining room or the bedroom or in storage. And quite frankly, I am tired of it. The point is, the podcasting equipment is in the family room. And the family room was under heavy usage while the in-laws were here. There simply was no window of time when I would not have been disturbing someone or someone wouldn't have been distracting me. So. On hiatus, the podcast went. The in-laws left at the end of June, so you would think that I would have got right back into working on the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, you would think so, but, well, obviously that didn't happen. No excuse, really. I'm getting tired of making excuses. Ideally, I will eventually have a finished office space in the basement where I will be able to go any time to work without distraction and without bothering anyone else. And I am working towards that. It's just a slow process because, well, to be honest with you, the finances just aren't where they should be. But I am gradually getting up some drywall and hopefully sometime soon I will be putting up a partition wall in order to create a separate room for the office. And when I do that, I am going to take some steps towards sound mitigation. Not necessarily soundproofing, because (laughs) 
that can get ridiculously expensive depending on how far you take it. But I will be taking steps towards creating a quiet enough space where sounds won't travel as much, where I will be able to work and record regardless of how many people are in the house. Like I said, though, the finances aren't quite where we need them to be. Outflows exceed inflows. So, I just keep plucking away a few sheets of drywall at a time as I can afford them. We were hoping for some improvement in the financial situation, but that hasn't happened. We went from two incomes down to one not too long after we moved in, and unfortunately, we need to stop looking at that as a temporary setback and adjust to it as a new reality. And we probably should have done that long before now. Like, I don't know, maybe two years ago? Oh well, better late than never. We have finally made a couple of changes to improve our cash flow, and that is what I'm going to be talking about in this episode. Now, once upon a time, I swore that I was never going to pay for something that was free. My first house had an outdoor antenna to receive over-the-air television, and I had a VCR that was capable of scheduling eight events which served all my time-shifting television-watching needs. I also had a landline telephone and a DSL internet connection, which was blazing fast for the time. Life was good. Then we moved. We moved to a house where the -the over-the-air picture quality just wasn't very good. Now, in hindsight, I guess we probably could have replaced the antenna or even just the coax cable going to the antenna. And that might have been enough to fix the problem. But, you know, we went to a home show. And we were seduced by satellite. We couldn't get cable where we were, so satellite was really the only other alternative. And the introductory offer was just too good to pass up. Well, to go from a handful of channels to dozens upon dozens of channels was amazing. Yep, we were hooked. We went from free to about 80 bucks a month pretty darn quickly. As for the internet, well, that was a nightmare. No high-speed internet was available at first in our location, so it was back to dial-up for us. Now, this was before streaming, this was before YouTube, this was before social media, so, you know, it wasn't such a big deal. For most of what we did online, dial-up was good enough. Sure, it was slow and tedious, but we managed. As the years went by, though, we tried point-to-point wireless when that became available, That cost twice as much as dial-up, and it wasn't very consistent. We then tried a mobile hub that had a limit of 5 gig per month. It was more consistent than the other point-to-point wireless, but the overages were very expensive. And then we found another point-to-point wireless solution that gave us unlimited downloads at a guaranteed speed of 1 megabit per second. 
and that was about 50 bucks a month. It was way faster than dial-up. It was more consistent than the other high speed that we had tried, and it was less expensive than the mobile hub. Life was good. And then we moved to this house. Now we could get cable. Blazing fast internet at 40 megabits per second. It was a bit more expensive. Well, (laughs) quite a bit more expensive, but for that speed, it was worth it. And we had that packaged with TV, which was roughly the same as what we'd been paying for satellite. And also home phone, which was a little bit cheaper than what our landline had been. Life was really good. Well, in addition to the package price, we were also paying to rent a TiVo unit and two TiVo minis. We had, when we had satellite, we owned our equipment outright. So now we were paying an additional $30 per month that we were not paying before. And the sad thing is, we never hooked up the minis. We planned to have a TV in the bedroom, but we never bothered. We also have a brand new, well, it was brand new two years ago, 55-inch 4K LED smart TV for above the fireplace in our family room that is still in the box, which kind of shows you where my priorities are. So basically, we paid over $400 over the course of a couple years to rent these things that we never used. It's not necessarily a huge amount of money, but it's still a waste. Oh yeah, and that TV that we bought, it's about half the price now, but I'm not even going to talk about that. Anyway, we toyed with the idea of downgrading our television package and returning at least one of the TiVo minis, anything to save a few bucks. But we never did pull the trigger. And then in June we had a storm. And we think that the TiVo got zorched during that storm because it stopped working properly. Now, that is the advantage to renting equipment because we called the cable company and they scheduled a repairman for later that week. Here's the thing, though. We called on Monday and the repair guy was scheduled for Friday. Almost a week without TV. However, would we survive? Well, as it turns out, a couple of days in, we had had time to think. You know, we rarely watch the cable channels. My wife didn't even know what cable channels we had. A lot of our TV watching was streaming. A lot of Netflix. And we realized that we could buy an Android box and subscribe to two or three streaming services, and we would save about a hundred bucks each month. And as far as the telephone goes, well, each of us has a cell phone now. We really don't need a home phone anymore. Most of the calls that were going to the home phone were telemarketers or scammers anyway. So, goodbye cable TV, and goodbye home phone. And that's around $150 each month that we are saving, or more specifically, 
not going further in debt. In a good month, that might be enough to stop the bleeding. And so far, we have no regrets. We are happy with the Android box. The other step that we have taken to improve our financial situation is we cut our storage bill in half. Putting stuff in storage should only be a temporary measure, not a permanent solution. Getting stuff out of the way during renovations or storing stuff during a move or even seasonal storage of recreational equipment. That's all fine. But storing crap for a decade? Not so much. When we moved from our first house to the money pit, we temporarily stored stuff in my dad's basement. My father had mobility issues, and my wife and I took care of his laundry, so he really had no reason to go downstairs anymore. So having a pile of our stuff in the rec room didn't really impact on him. We moved in 2003. And we never did move our stuff out of his basement until after he passed away in 2008. And then we had his stuff and my mother's stuff, as well as our stuff, to move out. The stuff that we wanted to keep went into storage because, you know, three quarters of our house at the time was a construction zone. And we sold a lot of stuff at a yard sale. But we still managed to fill a storage unit. Even after a major renovation of our house, we still couldn't move our stuff out of storage because we had a second renovation phase planned. And that second phase, it never happened. We ended up moving instead. When we put the house on the market, we cleared out a lot of stuff so the house would show better. And we took a second storage unit. Temporarily, of course, like for a month or two. Well, after we moved, but before we could get our stuff out of storage, we had that aforementioned basement flood. So even more stuff ended up going to storage. And two months morphed into two years. And then some. Storage ain't cheap, even with the friends and family discount. And the stuff in storage definitely ain't worth what we've been paying to store it. It would have been less expensive to get rid of the stuff and buy new stuff to replace it later than to store the old stuff long term. Now, mind you, there's still a few family heirloom type things, but really, There's a lot of crap that just doesn't have a whole lot of value. So, this past summer, we started going through that crap with the goal of consolidating our two storage units. Now, there's a lot of crap that we are going to eventually sell at a yard sale. But there were also a lot of things that were worth more than what we could get for them at a yard sale. So, I started listing the stuff on an online classified site. And we've been fairly successful. Not only have we been able to eliminate the need for the second storage unit, but we have also put a fairly substantial amount of money in our pockets. And I gotta tell you, 
it's been eye-opening seeing exactly what we've been holding on to all this time. For example, I have kept lecture notes from university. Why? I don't know, maybe I thought they would be useful, but the truth is, I have never looked at them again. A quarter century later. I kept tests from high school, like grade 10 biology. Why? Maybe I thought it would be interesting to share with my offspring someday. I don't know. I even kept all my pay stubs. All my pay stubs. From the part-time supermarket job that I had in university to my current job and the temporary jobs in between. Okay, maybe it was interesting to see what I was making back at the time when I was paying for university, but I mean, come on. It was time for a lot of this stuff to meet the shredder. We have boxes of Christmas stuff, even though we don't decorate for Christmas because we usually go away. We don't need a lot of that. Some ornaments are family heirlooms, those we're holding on to, but the other stuff can go. Books. We have lots of books. Books that look good on bookshelves. A lot of those we will keep. Outdated textbooks, though? They no longer have a place in our library, but geez, that could be hard to justify after having spent so much money on those textbooks back in university. Especially when you see how much I was making at the time. Videos. Between streaming services and YouTube, we can probably pare down most of our video collection. Stuffies. Holy crap, does our daughter have a lot of stuffies. A lot of webkins because, well, she was at that age when they were hot sellers. That's a lot of Christmases and birthdays and just becauses. She's outgrown them. But she still wants to hold on to that part of her childhood, I guess. Still, there's a large box or two of stuffies suitable for a yard sale. My mother's stuff. My mom was interesting. She wasn't materialistic in the sense of having to have things in order to appear or feel wealthy. No. For my mother, things represented affection. They didn't have to be expensive things, though they couldn't be cheap either. I loved my mother. And one way that I was expected to show it was to buy her tchotchkes on special occasions. And if I forgot, oh, God forbid that I'd forget, she would see that as I obviously didn't care about her. (laughs) Oh, how I dreaded holidays and special occasions. I'm sure there were times when I found the perfect gift, but other times it was a crapshoot. Get the wrong thing? You know, you obviously don't care enough to know what I like. Too much stress. But let's break this down, shall we? There were half a dozen gift-giving occasions in a year. Valentine's Day, 
Easter, Mother's Day, anniversary, birthday, and of course, Christmas. And let's say that there were 15 to 20 prime gift-giving years. 20 times 6 is 120. Let's lop that number in half, because sometimes there was jewelry or perfume or sweaters, plus there were occasions that I forgot. So, maybe even less than half. Still, that's anywhere from 30 to 60 curios, figurines, tchotchkes, and knickknacks. And some of them she truly treasured. Others, maybe not so much. But when the question was asked, what did Doug get you for Mother's Day? She had something that she could point to. But what meaning does that stuff have now? Now that it's been over 16 years since Mom passed away. Do those things have any meaning for me? Am I supposed to cherish something just because my mother did. Yet, some of those objects do spark something. There is some sort of connection to my mother. Or is there? I I don't know. I don't know. I can feel my mother looking over my shoulder and I can hear her saying not to get rid of some of the things that she liked. But really, things are just things, aren't they? And now that I'm in my 50s, I have to realistically consider my own mortality. What is our daughter expected to do with our stuff? And will she know which stuff was ours and which was her grandmother's and so on and so forth? Is there going to be any sentimental connection with any of this stuff? It's weird, isn't it? The meaning that we attach to things. But it's not just the meaning. It's also the value. How many of us are holding on to things that we expect to, you know, be worth a lot of money someday? My aunt. My aunt collected plates for the Bradford Exchange. Okay, that's fine. She liked them. They gave her some joy. But at the same time, she had a fear that, you know, once she was gone, that her daughter-in-law was going to just sell the plates for a buck a piece at a yard sale not knowing how much they were worth. The question is, what were they worth? I recently took a look at auctions on eBay, and there were a lot of Bradford Exchange plates, and none, none had any bids. None. Something is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it when you are selling it. I don't know whatever happened to those plates, but they certainly weren't as valuable as my aunt thought they were. Something is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it. I'm showing my age here, but back in the early 1990s, there was a lot of interest in baseball and hockey cards. Turned out that some of the ones from the 50s and 60s were worth thousands of dollars each. And a lot of guys were lamenting the fact that they had some of those cards at one time, but their mothers had thrown them away. Or they had simply stuck the cards in the spokes of their bikes when they were kids, not knowing the potential investment value. Thousands of dollars. Well, here's the deal. 
the reason that those cards were worth so much was because they were rare. And the reason that they were rare was because mothers all over the country had tossed them out. If everyone had held on to their Mickey Mantle rookie card, it wouldn't be worth as much. It's called supply and demand, folks. I had an almost but not quite complete collection of hockey cards from, I think it was 1979. Uh, It included Wayne Gretzky's rookie card. And a few years ago, I looked that card up online and the best price that I could find for it was about $125. Okay, cool. You know, it's worth something, right? And I had some other cards. Some were worth a few bucks. Some were not worth anything. I ended up selling that entire collection to a dealer for $40. So why so little when the Gretzky card alone was worth three times that? Well, it costs money to have cards graded. None of these cards were professionally evaluated. Would it have been worth spending $15 or more to have a card evaluated? Maybe. Maybe not. It depends what the result of the evaluation was. And then to get top value, I would have had to market and sell those cards myself. And there is an expense and time investment to that. The dealer that I sold them to has to make his money. I understood that. And it was cash in my pocket that day. Cash in my pocket was worth more to me than a box of cards in my closet. Could I have got more? Maybe. But as they say, a bird in hand. Probably one of my favorite examples of perceived value versus actual value is something in my record collection. Okay, I'll admit it. When I was a kid, I was a fan of Elvis. My exposure to hard rock and heavy metal wouldn't happen until high school, so I have a number of Elvis records on vinyl in my music collection. One of those albums is Moody Blue, which was his last studio recording. After his death, that album was re-released on Collector's Edition Blue Vinyl. I got the Collector's Edition Moody Blue album on Blue Vinyl as a Christmas gift. Now, as a family, we already had Moody Blue on a track that a family friend had dubbed for us. Because back in those days, there were 8-track recorders and you could buy blank 8-track tapes. So we had a copy already. So my mom says to me, Be sure to hold on to the Collector's Edition Moody Blue album on blue vinyl because it's going to be worth a lot of money someday. In fact, she told me to leave it wrapped because we have the 8-track anyway. Don't even open it. No need to. It'll be worth more. So that record has sat in my collection in the original factory shrink wrap for over 40 years because it was essentially an investment. Well, here's an interesting thing about that album. Millions of copies of the blue vinyl version were sold. The version of the record that is worth the most money is the original black vinyl that was sold before Elvis' death. And really, with the internet, Elvis memorabilia is not that hard to find anyway. 
Rare isn't as rare as it used to be. It is easier to connect with collectors from anywhere in the world today. So you know what? I think I'm going to break open that shrink wrap and give that album a spin. So anyway, like I said, we got our storage down from two units to one, and we sold off a bunch of stuff through an online classified site. And once we started selling stuff, it got kind of addictive. Now, as with most things, I am by no means an expert, but for what it's worth, I would like to offer you a few tips for selling off stuff that you no longer want or need. Stuff that no longer sparks joy. That's a Marie Kondo reference. First of all, as a general rule of thumb, if you have a yard sale, you can expect about 10 to 15% of the retail value of an item depending on its condition. So something that sells for about 100 bucks, you might be able to sell it for about 15 bucks on a good day. Realistically, I have found in my experience that selling through a classified site like Craigslist or Kijiji, a fair price is somewhere around 30% or 40 maybe. You will see some people thinking that they can get closer to 80 or even 100%, but I mean, come on, let's get real here. What's cool about online classifieds is that you can do market research in real time. Back in the olden days, when we used to buy print ads in the local newspaper, it would take a day or two before the ad would be published. There was no way to know what your competition was going to be when your ad finally showed up. With online classifieds, you can see the ads that your ad will be directly competing with because your ad will be going live right away. So you can see what other people are asking for similar items and you can decide how you are going to market yours. Do you think yours is worth more? Well, highlight the differences that increase its value so you can ask more. Or you can do what I do, and that is price it less than the competition. Undercut. Sell faster. My goal, after all, is to get rid of stuff. For me, the money is secondary. Whatever you do, you should know your lowest threshold. And always price above that to allow for haggling because people like to haggle. Ask $50 when you are willing to accept $40. You get the idea. I have never had any issues with people coming to the house or meeting people in parking lots or even delivering to their homes. But if safety is a concern, check with your local police department and see if they offer a safe zone for online transactions. Like I said, selling off your stuff can actually become addictive. You get rid of stuff that you no longer need or want, and it puts money in your pocket. About a quarter of our storage unit now is stuff that we intend to sell at a yard sale. Some things are more difficult to sell through a classified site or The smaller price tag just isn't worth the effort of an individual listing. But selling those things at a yard sale, the $1 here and $2 there really adds up. Make no mistake, a yard sale is an exhausting pain in the tuchus. But for about six hours of work, 
you can get rid of stuff that you don't want, and you can make a few hundred bucks, give or take. So, here are a few tips for yard sales. Expect early birds. It is impossible to prevent people from showing up as soon as they see you setting up, or if you advertise the yard sale, even earlier. Therefore, you really need to have help. It takes someone to set stuff up and someone to ward off the throngs until the sale is ready. When we had the yard sale at my dad's house after it had sold, my wife and I started putting stuff out. Things seemed to be under control, so I went to put a couple signs at a couple high-traffic corners. That was the only advertising that we were doing for this yard sale. And I was gone for maybe 10 minutes at the most. And when I got back, there were at least a dozen people browsing our sale. Thank goodness one of our neighbors was helping out. It is unrealistic to expect to handle a yard sale on your own without help. And no matter how much help you have, you have to expect theft. (laughs) Sad but true. Yard sales can be chaotic, and when they are busy, there are people who will take advantage of the situation and walk away without paying for stuff. You know, if you see that happen, choose your battles. Be very careful about confronting the perpetrator. I mean, after all, your goal is to get rid of stuff. And anything that doesn't sell, you're probably going to give away or donate or even send to the landfill anyway. But rest assured that most people are honest, so don't let the idea of theft deter you. As I said before, a fair price at a yard sale is roughly 10 to 15% of the retail value, depending on condition. Price too high? and you will repel potential buyers. If they see one overpriced item, they may not bother browsing the rest. If you price too low, well, you might be leaving money on the table. You can always expect some haggling over prices. That can be fun, or it can be frustrating, or even sometimes offensive. That's why you should always bake a little wiggle room into some of your prices. And expect buyers to bundle items together to get a better price. Even stuff that you are selling for a quarter, there will always be someone who will try to buy it for a dime. Remember, at the end of the day, the stuff that you donate or discard will not be worth anything to you anyway. If you have kids and you want them to get a taste of the entrepreneurial spirit, Here's an idea. Our daughter was six years old when we had the yard sale at my dad's house, and she asked if she could have a lemonade stand. Her thinking was that people shopping at the yard sale would probably be thirsty. So we set her up, out of the way, and sure enough, business was booming for her. The same people that will argue over 50 cents... Don't think twice about spending that and more on a small cup of lemonade. Seriously. The twerpazoid had a pretty good haul that day. I just wish that I'd thought of that idea when I was a kid at our family yard sales. The beauty of a yard sale is that at the end of the day, well, it's the end of the day, it's exhausting, but you can get rid of a lot of stuff. A lot. 
lot of stuff in the matter of a few hours. It really is surprising how much stuff we tend to collect. It's one thing to have a cluttered house with closets bursting at the seams, but when it overflows and starts costing money for a storage unit, well, it might be time for a purge. And if you can line your pockets with some cash at the same time, all the better. So I hope this helps you out. If you have any tips for selling your stuff, share them on the show notes page for this episode. Just go to thumbandhammer.com slash pod, P-O-D, and click on the link for episode 30. So anyway, that's kind of where we are now. The money that has come in from selling stuff has certainly helped. Reducing our storage bill by half has also helped, as has getting rid of the cable TV and home phone. Now we have the long process of knocking down our debts while at the same time controlling our spending on home improvements. It's a delicate balance, for sure. And, you know, it's usually a case of one step forward, two steps back. Don't get me wrong, at least we're taking that one step forward now or else we'd be in real trouble. But you always got to be prepared for the two steps back. So August was a pretty good month for us. We are saving money on storage. We are making money selling stuff. I'm cleaning up old paperwork. I'm getting work done on the house. Things are looking up. Well, we can't have that, can we? No. Let's see. I took our minivan in for an oil change, and they let me know that the tires have dry rot and need to be replaced before winter or sooner. And as if that isn't bad enough, the headlight in our car burnt out. That sort of thing used to be an easy fix. Go to Canadian Tire, pick up a bulb for 25 bucks, pop out the old one, pop in the new one, and you're done. Simple. But of course, it can't be that simple, can it? No, of course not. According to the owner's manual, we have the type of bulb that needs to be serviced by a dealer. And it's freaking expensive. And one step forward, two steps back. It's always something. And to top things off, we have another major expense coming due at the end of October. Our house and car insurance. That's always painful. So we have that to look forward to. So with all that in mind, I have to look at things realistically. It's probably going to be a while before I have an ideal work environment. The home office. So that's why I've set up a more comfortable space than what I had. I finally got the file cabinet out of storage after two and a half years and started organizing my paperwork. I carved out a space for my desk and files in the family room. It's not ideal, but it's a whole lot better than what I've had for the last couple of years. At least it will be easier for me to stay organized. I have learned that you should never assume that a temporary inconvenience is going to be temporary. I mean, if you walk past the same mess every day and say, oh, geez, I got to do something about this, then you know what? You got to start thinking creatively about how you can improve the situation even in the face of an unfinished project. It's the difference between saying, I will be able to get organized once I finish whatever home improvement project is in progress. 
versus asking, how can I get organized now while the project is in progress? And of course, the easiest way to organize stuff is to have less of it. So with that, I am going to wrap up this episode of the podcast. I will be back again. Um, I'd like to say in a couple weeks, but (laughs) let's face it. I ain't the most consistent podcaster. That's why you should make sure that you subscribe. So the next episode is downloaded automatically whenever it's released. And if you leave a rating and review, it will really help me out by helping others find the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me at thumbandhammer.com and on Twitter at thumbandhammer. All one word. I would love to hear from you. So until next time, cheers.